A reading from the book of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what, may, what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am praying not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them... I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy and be fulfilled in themselves. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I lo- as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Today is Trinity Sunday. It is that one day out of the year that we set apart in order to contemplate the mysterious wonder of all that God is in himself. But I hope to show you that when we stop to contemplate the Trinity, we are not moving outside of the world into a a misty abstraction. 
To contemplate the Trinity is to investigate the very structure of existence itself. But perhaps that already sounds too abstract. To contemplate the Trinity is another way of asking if our life makes any sense at all. Now, the Trinity is a famously precise truth. It is so precise that to deviate from the standard uh, formulations is to risk getting it horribly wrong. Sometimes theologians get a bad rap for being fussy about the Trinity, fixating on every word, policing other people's words, working themselves up into a sweat, usually in coffee shops. To mention the Trinity around a theologian is to suffer an endless string of well-actuallys. You know what a well-actually is. It's whenever you say something that's really close to the truth, but not quite precise enough, and then a theologian in the room clears his throat and says, well, actually. My wife tells me that these things are not as appreciated as I might otherwise think. But as frustrating as theologians might be, and they can be frustrating, we have to admit that it seems right for them to be so careful in guarding our language about the Trinity. To get the Trinity wrong makes Christianity unnecessary. Other religions have something like an incarnation. Other secular ideologies uh, tell us about the importance of being a good person. Other religions can offer us a vague sense of comfort. But only Christians believe in the Trinity. Only Christianity believes in a God who is one in his very threeness and three in his very oneness. To get the Trinity wrong is to miss Christianity altogether. So I think it's right for us to be particular and precise when we talk about the Trinity. However, the travesty is that this precision can often make the Trinity seem cold and distant, as if the Trinity was an important artifact that we have to keep under glass and hidden away in a dirty museum so that only the experts can talk about it and study it. This conception of the Trinity is what I want to smash. The Trinity is less like an artifact in a museum and more like the air that we breathe. The Trinity is not separate from our daily experience. It is what makes everything work. To live is already to live in the Trinity. We should not be precise about the Trinity just so that we can say some true things about God. This is not the goal of theology. We try to be precise because we long to be loved. And if we misarticulate the Trinity then we will fail to articulate a God who can love us. Theological talk about the Trinity is not done from a position of power, like a scientist dissecting a dead frog. Theological talk about the Trinity is an act of desperation. We long to be loved. We have this intuitive sense that if the deepest force of reality is not love, then all is for nothing. There is no security. There is no joy. We come to the Trinity when we are at the end of our ropes, when we finally realize that reality is either all about love or it's not worth living at all. So as we come to the Trinity, we come as beggars, hoping against hope, hoping against all the odds that behind all this pain and suffering in the world, behind this veil of tears, is a God who is nothing but love. And when we come to the Trinity, we come to a God who was and is and forever shall remain love itself. I want to look at the experience of love, or the experience of falling in love. If God is the ultimate reality behind everything, then our experience of love opens a window and shows us what God must be like. God must be something like that feeling of falling in love, 
Otherwise, that experience would not exist at all. The gospel reading in our, uh, today talks about love. If you look at verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you loved me. From this passage, we can see that, that love makes many into one. Jesus prays that all of his fathers would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And in this oneness, Christians are supposed to have with one another. We realize that we are loved even as the Father loves the Son. But let's remind ourselves what it was like to fall in love. Once upon a time, we may have felt like our own person. We felt that we belonged to ourselves. We did whatever we wanted to do. We were minding our own business, strolling through life, and then all of a sudden... We meet that other person, and then the fall. We fall in love. Everything is messed up. Our life is ruined. All the dreams that we had for our life as an individual, gone. It fell. After the fall, we find that we are no longer our own. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong entirely to another person. For those who have fallen in love, our identity be, seems to be so tied to the, to the other person that we barely know who we are without them. Sometimes this fall happens without our awareness. We wake up one morning to realize that the life that I used to live, the life I was so happy to be by myself, is no longer an option for me. That life is done away with. It no longer seems like life to me at all. We often talk this way about romantic love, but anyone who has a close friend or who has, remembers the first time of looking at their child, their newborn uh, baby, has also experienced this. Friendship and parenthood are also experiences of our life being ruined, experiences of attachment that leave us irrevocably tied to another person. What happened here? What happens when we fall in love? What caused this situation that ruins my life in such a way that I actually want it to be ruined? Where I actually give up my independence to be chained to another person? To fall in love is to have an idea of a possible life with that other person inserted into my imagination. This idea generates within me a desire for that life. A desire to move outside of myself, outside of what I thought was myself. This movement is key to love. Love makes you break up that closed sense of identity that was trapped within you. And it moves yourself outside of yourself to be with another person. To be in love means that your identity is an, is an identity of movement outside of yourself towards another. But the relationship of love cannot be static. In mutual love, each person has an idea of what their life of togetherness looks like. Each person moves out of themselves in order to be with the other person in a particular way. Love always looks like a dance where two people are striving to accomplish a unified vision of their life of together. However, this is why love is so hard. In trying to move together, we have different conceptions of what this common life should look like, and so we keep stepping on each other's toes. Sometimes one person is dancing a waltz and another person is dancing the tango. And this is why couples that have been together for a long time are so beautiful to watch. They seem to have a shared vision of their life of togetherness. And so their movement is a choreographed dance of anticipating the other's needs and then fulfilling them. 
I go into such detail about love because I want you to see how love makes multiple parties into one through a common life of motion. In love, my very identity is bound to the other person. I am no longer myself alone, but I exist to be involved with another. I exist outside of myself with another. Love changes my identity in this way in order to reformulate my life, to ruin my life, and to make it a common life. The communal life of love is a common life of movement, of striving to perform our oneness in a dance of life. We experience love in this way because deeply ingrained into the pattern of the universe is the structure of love itself. The Trinity is the structure of love because the Trinity is a multiple that are one. The Father, in order to be a father, has to have an identity that is already directed towards a person. A father can only be a father if he has a son. So the father's identity is a movement of love towards the son. Likewise, the son, in order to be a son, has to have a father. And so the son also already has an identity that is directed towards a common life with another person. The son's identity is a movement of love towards the father. Both the father and the son have a conception of their common life that is so substantial that it is itself another person in the Holy Spirit. It's as if the Holy Spirit comes to the Father and convinces him to go out of himself in love for the Son, and then comes to the Son and convinces him to go out of himself in love for the Father. In this way, the Holy Spirit is the common life of love that the Father and the Son perform and in which they find their identities. The Trinity is like a dance, always completed and yet always beginning again. The father has always already moved out of himself in love for the son, and this is what makes him a father. The son has always already moved out of himself in love for the father, and this is what makes him a son. This mutual motion of love has always already happened and been generated by the person of the Holy Spirit. God's inner life is the very structure of love itself. No other religion claims that their God is love. They may claim that their God is loving, but this would imply that God has a personality that can be characterized as, as love. Only Christianity can say that our God is love itself. Thus, only a Trinitarian God can make sense of our experience of love. This is what we are desperate for on Trinity Sunday. We experience love as central to our existence and as something that gives our life meaning, and yet love seems under attack everywhere we look. We are constantly reminded of the fragility of love when we look at the divorce rates. We begin to doubt love when we see the self-centered nature of the dating app culture or the culture of casually hooking up. We are troubled by our own failings in love, those times where we seem to prove ourselves definitively unlovable, those times where love has failed us. In these moments, we look for hope. We look for assurance that love is not an illusion or a passing fantasy. We look for assurance that it is real. To gain this hope, we have only to look to the Trinity. Since the Trinity is the very structure of love, then deep within the very fabric of reality is love itself. Love is the warp and woof of what it means to be a human being in the world that God has made. And so to be desperate for love is to be desperate for the Trinity. But perhaps it seems like I've stated too much. You might say, sure, our experience of love is Trinitarian, but that's only one small facet of our human experience. 
Perhaps we might say that even love is not the dominant experience of our life, given all the pain and suffering that we face. By what audacity do I claim that love is the central aspect of all reality? To answer this question, let's look back at our gospel, gospel reading. As we come to this gospel passage, we come to a very complex passage of Scripture. As we read the chapter, we get a sense that the Father sent the Son into the world in order to wrap human beings into a relationship of love that is shared by the Trinity. Jesus says things like, What you, Father, have given to me, I have given to them. So the love that the Father has given to the Son has been given to us. In verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Jesus is safe and secure within the love that the Father has for him. And he desires that we may be with him in that love. There is a problem. Verse 25 goes on to say that the world does not know this love. They do not know the love of the Father. They have no hope. The world is lost without the love of the Father. But Jesus solves this problem in verse 26. He said, I made note to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The eternal Son of God has come to earth in order to make sure that the love that is shared by the Father and the Son is known and experienced by the world. Sometimes we lose track of this Trinitarian element of the gospel whenever we try to articulate the gospel. In a hurry to talk about sin and salvation and justification, we lose track of this Trinitarian love that is the primary element of the gospel. So I think it'll be helpful to step back and to look at a history of the world in light of the Trinity, in light of this Trinitarian love. In the beginning, God was so happy in himself with his own Trinitarian love that he desired to share this love with others. And so he created the world. The plan was that as the father goes outside of himself in love for the son, so God would go outside himself in order to create the world. However, as the Son goes outside of himself in returning love to the Father, the world was to return the love of God back to him in a gesture of return. In this way, creation would have been totally wrapped into the dynamic common life of love that is the Trinity. The world would have been totally within the Holy Spirit as the dynamic giving and receiving that is love. However, we know the story. As creation went out from God, it threatened to never come back. As Adam and Eve sinned, they ran from God. They hid themselves from him, and they were banished from his presence. Sin is always a running away from God when we should be returning to him in love. So after the fall, it seemed that all was lost. It seemed that creation would lose its ability to return to God in love, and so it seemed that creation would lose the experience of the Trinitarian love of God. Being loved by God, the world spurned God's love and ran away. But God would have none of this. He would not be without the world that he loved just because sin threatened to break the relationship. The God who is completely happy in himself is also the God who chooses to be happy with us. And so the Father sent the Son to take creation into himself. The Son takes on human nature and he takes all of created reality. Material itself comes into the Godhead. 
And then he makes the perfect act of loving return to the Father that we could not make. He does what we could never do for ourselves, and he, he returns the love of creation to the Father. He completes the circle on our behalf. When we are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Trinity. And this is to remind us that in our baptism, we are united to Christ's offering of himself to the Father. In our sin, we run from the arms of the Father who longs to embrace us. And in baptism, this sin is washed away. And we mysteriously find ourselves in that warm embrace of the Father and the Son in a perfect Trinitarian love. This is why I claim that love is woven into the very fabric of reality. All the pain and sorrow of our life is caused by sin that rejects the loving embrace of the Father. But this rejection is something that God would not abide he knows that we only reject his love out of ignorance because we fail to understand his, the depth of his love for us. Even Jesus, when he was on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. So Jesus Christ overcomes our, rejecting, our rejection by becoming a human being and offering a return gesture of love to the Father. The church is how we participate in this loving return of the Son to the Father. I've already mentioned baptism, but we also participate in Trinitarian love through the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we become the body of Christ, which is being offered to God as a sacrifice of love. In a few moments, I want you to listen to the liturgy. When the priest says the words of institutions behind the altar, you'll notice that he says, this is right after we say, we have our lines that we say, and then he says, we celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. The gifts that we offer are bread and wine. In the bread and wine, we also offer the body and blood of Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice of love and praise that we could not offer ourselves. But something curious happens. We're giving these things to God, but yet instead of God eating them, we eat them. By taking bread and wine into ourselves, into our body, we take the body and blood of Jesus into ourselves and we actually become the body of Christ. So now in the Eucharist, we are offering ourselves as gifts to the Father. When we say we offer you these gifts and point to bread and wine, and we take that bread and wine into ourselves, now we're saying we offer our whole selves all that we ever will become, all that we ever were. We offer to you, Father. And this is why we come forward to the altar. We come to that place where God is enthroned into the heavens. And we make a return gesture of love. We give ourselves as an offering of love, which also paradoxically is God's love to us because he's feeding us. The restoration of Trinitarian love comes through the sacraments. Salvation comes through the sacraments. In baptism, we find that we are already included in the love of the Father and the Son. And in the Eucharist, we actively participate in the Son's loving act of return to the Father. But all this means that to be in the church is to be in the Holy Spirit. The liturgy is a constant give and take. The priest says something, and then the people says something. The liturgy is a common life that requires all members to be involved. If the priest says, the Lord be with you, and then the congregation says nothing, it would be like God sending out love into the world, and then that love not returning to him. There would be a brokenness of communal life. So in the liturgy, Many become one. We say the same thing. We form a common life together. And to be in the liturgy 
is to be in the Holy Spirit. But we also notice what happens at the end of the liturgy. When the deacon, usually Cheryl, stands in front of us and then sends us out into the world. She's sending us out to be the love of God to the world. The idea is that we go out into the world sharing God's love and then we gather people and then we bring them out. And that's why we have a processional at the beginning of the service where members of our congregation as symbolically representing us come forward because we've gone out into the world to share love. We've, we've created things in the world. Now we're bringing them all back and we're bringing our own love, our own full selves back into God's presence, back into the altar to be, God's, to be the body of Christ again as we partake in the Eucharist. Now I realize that this was all a lot to take in. The Trinity is the reality behind all reality, and so it affects everything. It's hard to really talk about anything without finding yourself talking about the Trinity. If you are looking for something to take away, take away these two things. First, the Trinity is not some misty abstraction far away from everyday life. Rather, the Trinity is near to you in those moments of love that give your life the most meaning. The second truth to take home is this. The Trinity loves you despite how you feel. The Trinity longs for you to be wrapped into his common life of love. God may feel far away and distant, but this feeling is a lie. It is an illusion. If God was distant, he would not be the Trinity, and you ought to reject him. But because he is Trinity, he is near to you. He loves you. He is love itself, and he welcomes you into himself through Jesus Christ and through his church. Will you come to this embrace? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.